Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Josh Marshall podcast. So, if you're of a certain age, right? If you're if you're if you're Gen X, if you're I guess if you're a, if you're a boomer, you know, if you're people who remember the Cold War, this has been a pretty weird week. It hasn't been a fun week, right? We're a week into this thing, which is a major land war in Europe, which is what we managed to avoid for the four plus decades of the Cold War and then since the end of the Cold War. But now we are right in it and it's pretty scary. It's pretty scary on a few levels. You know, uh, hopefully this winds down at some point in the not too distant future. When I say winds down, I mean active hostilities end. And there's various ways we can imagine that happening. One is that the Russians just decide that they screwed up and and you know maybe find some kind of face saving way to pull back or maybe they pull back and ho- they're going to hold on to Crimea and those two you know kind of provinces in the east but basically all right we screwed up and who knows what that means for Vladimir Putin but that's one possibility the other possibility is they just wreck the place basically the way they did in Grozny uh 25 plus years ago or in Aleppo in Syria and you know and then there's the various intermediate possibilities and and hopefully we don't have an escalation to something really bad which again is something it's something it's clearly some kind of generational here i'll get to that in a moment but assuming it winds down without dramatic more escalations this is going to be a different world we're living in right you already have this kind of universal move in among uh european states to rearm it's probably not going to be sufficient anymore for NATO to just have kind of tripwire type troop deployments in Eastern Europe. We are in the process of basically decoupling Russia from like the entire global economic and diplomatic system. This is a big deal. I mean, Russia is a pretty small country economically, uh, you know, relatively speaking. It's it's it is nowhere near as big an economy as its nuclear arsenal makes it a player in in international affairs but this is a big big deal and and you know i uh it's funny i've there's all sorts there's so many things to say about this it is a if it weren't so dangerous and terrifying it would be a fascinating thing to to observe for a million different reasons but i've noticed that a lot of people you know they're seeing these videos from ukraine they are seeing very brave people who are in the process of being surrounded in these cities. Russia coming off, I wouldn't say initial defeats, but it is not, the, the military campaign has not gone well for them so far. So they're upping the ante. They're, they're figuring they're actually going to have to kind of, you know, power their way through this. And uh, people are getting killed. It's, it's, it's very hard to watch. And the, the bravery and steadfastness of uh, members of the Ukrainian government, not to mention the military, but the civilians is very powerful to watch. And you see a lot of people saying, you know what, we need, we can't let this happen. We need to, we need to go in and, and, you know, declare a no fly zone or something. Cause we can't, we can't let this kind of butchery happen. Now, <laughs> I understand the sentiment, but I'll tell you, this is really an example that the American public has very little living memory 
of the U.S. military fighting a peer military. Now, what we've seen from the Russian military over the last week has not been terribly impressive. Still, this is not the Iraqi military. It's not the Serbian military. It's not Libya. This is a world-class military with a big nuclear arsenal, right? People seem to think like, what is a no-fly zone? Is It's like a force field we put up. Like when we when we decide, okay, it's it's like it's like we like we call a timeout or something when the things we're seeing on TV get too weird, right? I mean, to state the obvious, a quote unquote no fly zone is a declaration of war. We would go in there and say we will shoot down any planes you put in the sky. That's direct military confrontation. We will also have to blow up everything you have on the ground that can threaten our planes. I mean, you might as well just say, look, this is not okay. So we're going to just going to come in. We're going to push you back into Russia from Ukraine. Now, my understanding of these military matters is that we could probably do that in conventional terms. We've got a better military. We've got a bigger military. We've got better weapons. And and again, it's still an interesting question. What exactly has... Uh, what exactly has gone on with the Russian army over the last week? I think the, I think the best some of it is probably this whole idea that the after the nadir of the Russian army in the '90s that it's sort of reformed and gotten more lethal and blah 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 blah. That that's maybe not as true as we thought. Having said that, what it really seems like is that uh, Russia, Vladimir Putin, his you know seems like pretty tight circle running things there now, had the sense they could do kind of like a shock and awe campaign in Ukraine, and it would fall apart. And so you could kind of do this on the cheap, right? You 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 toss in a lot of rockets, a lot of scary explosions, and everybody just kind of gives up. And when that didn't happen, they didn't have the plan in place to have a, a sort of a full in coordinated invasion like they're probably going to do now. But there's other things too. They're having lots of like logistics breakdowns, right? When you have a modern army and, and the Russian army is, is fundamentally an armored force, tanks, armored personnel carriers, stuff, you know, stuff like that. It's a land army. You coordinate that stuff with air support, with logistics. It's, it is a very, for those of us, and I include myself, and I'm, not, I'm far from any military expert, it's a, very, it's a very complex thing. It's not just about personal heroism and bravery, you know, kind of hand-to-hand combat or something like that. It is very, there's lots of different stuff. And yet what we've seen is you have tank formations or even just, you know, very small armored formations out on their own without air support or out on their own ahead of their logistics backing, right? So you run out of gas. You have armored formations that don't have air so lots of lots of kind of disorganization. And the Ukrainians have made the most of that, not only militarily, but also in the sort of the propaganda battle. You know that they're look at them. They're holding up against the the Russian army. The other thing, and I mentioned this in a in a post I did uh, yesterday or the day before. The additional thing is that it now seems like the Russian government, perhaps you know the Russian uh, general staff, didn't inform their army until the last minute that there was actually going to be an invasion. Now you have all sorts of operational secrecy. You don't just tell like you know the, every private like, all right, we're going in at you know Thursday at nine is is the go. But it's very critical in this kind of situation that you need to prepare your army for what you're going to do. You need to prepare them both operationally. Like, look, we're going to invade, or there's a very good chance we're going to invade. So everybody needs to get ready. Everybody needs to you know think about what you need to do. And when you get into the officer corps, everybody's got to do their planning and this kind of stuff. And then you also need to prepare them from a, a morale point of view, right? To get ready. You're going you're gonna to kill people. Your friend, you're going to have friends who, all that kind of stuff, right? But it seems like they didn't really do that, that a lot of this army that was gathering around, you know, around Ukraine and in Belarus on the, on the border of Ukraine, they didn't know this was going to happen. And so that also seems to have played into the, the fact that it hasn't gone that well. And the, and the disorganization. For those of us, I mean, <laughs> Russia has a big nuclear arsenal. It has the tactical nuclear weapons. Those are the ones you use in actual, you know, kind of combat. Although it's always been kind of a question, you know, how much can you use nuclear, you know, battlefield nuclear weapons? Is that really plausible? But they've got theories of how to do it. We have them, they have them. And then there's the strategic ones, the world enders, 
you know, the thousand plus nuclear weapons that you have in reserve that we will obliterate your whole country as our kind of final card. And we both have that final card. Those of us who, who live for live at least some of our lives during the Cold War, we remember this stuff, right? It's scary as shit. It's not, this isn't kind of like, oh, like the war could affect me. This is like the whole world I know could be ended by this. It's, it's serious stuff. And I, I'm struck by, and I'm curious how much it, I've seen some indications that it's generational. Not that, you know, the young folks like Kate, or I don't know, I have no idea what Kate's opinion of, of, of this is, but, you know, not that young folks are kind of wanting to go to war, but at least they don't have that, that recollection of what the cold, you know, what living during the Cold War was uh, like. And it's, it's funny for those of you who are old enough, it occurred to me uh, yesterday that if, if you are, if you're under 40, you have no memory of the Cold War. And like, you know, a lot of the population's under 40. So, uh, so that's happening. And, um, you know, I think for what it's, I mean, I've had various people ask me this, the thing you always have to worry about in that whole big, scary question is not so much one side saying, yep, I think it makes sense for us to have a full nuclear exchange in which like everybody in both countries dies, but you can have misunderstandings and you have uncertainty and one side's not sure what the other side's doing and no one, you know, it's uncertainty and mistakes and miscalculations that you have to worry about. And, you know, I don't want to freak anybody out. I think this will be okay. But this is why this kind of stuff, having, having Russia do this right on the border with NATO countries that we are treaty pledged to defend, having a lot of those countries, including us, now sending arms to a country that seems to be kind of beating Russia up. I mean, you know, not that they're the aggressor, but you know, Russia's having a hard time here and we're sending them weapons. This is very, very dangerous stuff. And uh, maybe different people have different, uh, you know, lived experiences uh, from, from the past that kind of informs how they, how they see this. That said, you know, the world goes on, at least for the moment. And uh, we had State of the Union last night, which, you know, <laughs> certainly happening under in in a in a fairly news rich environment you know and it's 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 funny this is the thing that uh you know look i am not terribly optimistic about about how this midterm election is going to go but the last week is an example of like man you don't know what's happening in 7 months or 8 months or 9 months even 1 month sometimes i mean i haven't heard anybody talking about covid in the last week and and that doesn't obviously mean it's done right it's still a thing but that is kind of suddenly you know two or three rungs down the 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 um you know the news ladder and obviously it helps uh, by the fact that at least for now the omicron wave is really petering out and it's you know kind of down i think at least in the northeast we're kind of almost as far down in terms of infections as we've ever been. Obviously, there's a long tail of a lot of mortality, a lot of people still dying. Um, we're going to talk about all that, all that fun stuff. Um, and we'll have a, we'll have a, you know, a generational, uh, I, I, not a showdown, but you know, uh, <laughs> we're, you know, we'll have different generations talking about this. But before we get to that, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. So you got hooked on $6 iced oat lattes and $5 nitro cold brews. Happens to the best of us. But a few months and a few hundred bucks later, you're ready to become your own barista. Making cold brew at home isn't rock and science, but it is messy. Not to mention the need for grinders and strainers and unitask or brewing containers. If you want to make cold brew at home the easy way, order a Grady's cold brew kit. It's a simple and space efficient way to make a week's worth of coffee without the mess. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, uh, Kate Riga, official young person of the, <laughs> of the Josh Marshall podcast. We're going to talk about... Um, we're going to talk about the State of the Union, but let's just let's just start off at the moment. Kind of like, does that? Do you have any sense that people of different ages are reacting to what has happened over the last week in different ways, or is that kind of everybody's like, oh shit, this isn't good? I think, especially in terms of kind of the hunger for war or the the airspace stuff that you've been talking about, I feel that at least the young people who I'm surrounded by are most kind of to have their worldview most deeply shaped here by the the Middle East wars 
which I think positions most people on the side of, you know, this this idea that the only options are do nothing or go to war, even, you know, cloaked in this kind of like, oh, no, it's just an airspace thing like that. That's war, you know, and I think having these two things as your only options seems like a lot of people haven't learned anything from those Middle East experiences. And also it just comes from this very weird, I think, like ultra patriotic place that rests on the assumption that us interfering in a warlike manner is a good thing. You know, it's kind of you do nothing or you do the heroic thing of sending our troops and getting involved when I think we have very recent examples of, you know, even some of this stuff is predicated on heroic ideas, you know, liberating a people, bringing them our freedom that did not do those things and made life worse for a lot of people. Um, So I think that's kind of how at least I've been thinking about it. And also, I think that that same kind of diametric setup with the do nothing or go to war it seems to me we're skipping over a lot of intermediary steps that we can do and that I think the administration is doing and that will have pretty severe ramifications on both kind of the normal people of Russia, who most of them probably don't deserve any of this, and then also, you know, the elites and the people who've got their money tied up in European banks and all the rest. So I think my or my aversion to war comes not from the Cold War framing, but from kind of seeing a series of war disasters that ended in just kind of ambiguous and unproductive suffering. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because there's the formative experiences for your generation and for people, you know, if I'd say for basically everybody under 40 is the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War. And it's funny that those, to me, those are important lessons for other things we might we might deal with. To me, I see this one like entirely through the Cold War prism. I mean, to me, this is this is a totally un unprovoked invasion. It's pretty black and white in in my view, kind of what has happened here. And you know, and look, the funny and this is this is kind of an uncomfortable uh, part of this, but part of our legacy that we have to that we have to embrace and come and and deal with is that. You know, if this is a lesson that more powerful countries shouldn't launch unprovoked wars on smaller countries, we're not doing perfect on that, right? I mean, now, Iraq is not Ukraine, was a very brutal authoritarian uh, country and had threatened its neighbors, blah, 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 blah. But uh, basically, we kind of, we sort of launched a war against them with no real justification. And that set us up for a, you know, debilitating occupation, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, so there are different historic experiences that can kind of end up in the same direction. I mean, to me, like if it were, even if there were no nuclear weapons, I don't know if it would make sense for us actually to get involved directly, but yeah, arm them, you know, kind of blah, 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 you know, help them out. I mean, but man, there are nuclear weapons. And this is a very, very, you know, this isn't a country like Iraq that we can kind of do anything we want. And there's, there's, it's not that there's no, there were no repercussions, but there's no existential repercussions. So it's interesting. And, and it's funny you say with, you know, the kind of the people reacting with, with patriotic fervor, what I have seen is a lot of people who I'm used to hearing about them talk about forever wars and, you know, the military industrial complex and stuff. And suddenly they're like, oh, I've had enough with Vladimir Putin. We got to get in there and kick his ass. I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? Like, what is, you know, which part of the nuclear weapons thing do you not remember? Um, so, you know, it's, I'm sure there are many, it's not it's clearly not just generational, but you know, there are different generational experiences, which in this case, and for some people can, can lead and lead in a similar direction. And I'm not saying we should, I mean, just for our listeners, I'm not saying we shouldn't, that we should wash our hands of this stuff. It's, we, I think we're basically, you know, calling it just about right of we're doing a lot of sanctions. We are, you know, bringing in, you know, we're basically rearming the Ukrainians. But even those things are, those things are dicey. You know, if we were in the process of invading a country and someone else said, I'm going to give the other guys weapons, we wouldn't say like, oh, 
we don't like it, but nothing we can, I mean, it's not an act of war exactly, but it's right up at the edge. Yeah. I mean, and to be clear, when I say the patriotic fervor point, I, I am talking about the people who are just kind of putting an air war in terms of like, you know, on the same page as sanctions, like just another thing you can do, you know what I mean? Um, and, the, and the other piece of this that I think is important is, you know, how they say Vietnam was the first televised war. You know, this is kind of the first real live streamed war. And I think that is having a big effect because it's hard to talk about war and its ramifications in abstract terms when you're forced to kind of see the misery and the damage that it causes. And in this case, I think that's been a really helpful tool for the Ukrainians to kind of build up global support nearly, you know, because it is, like you say, I mean, this one really is fairly black and white. It was an unprovoked attack. So they've already kind of gotten all that on their side. But I do think it is kind of affecting how people are talking about America considering military intervention and why I think there's been so much talk about this kind of, you know, we'll shoot down the planes thing and, and, and insistence on kind of exposing that for what it is, because it's much harder to kind of be all gung-ho beating the drums of war when you see pictures of little Ukrainian kids huddled in the metro underground or, you know, a rocket launched in a playground or any of those images, which we don't even know the veracity of most of them, but they all kind of drive in the same direction. And I do think give rise to the reality, which is what these people are living on the ground. Yeah. And there's a whole, it's funny because there's obviously a whole complicated and tendentious, but also very real debate about, you know, shit like this happened in Syria. Far, far worse stuff happened in Syria. I mean, this is, you know, there have been, you know, relative to other recent wars, certainly relative to other recent wars Russia has fought, civilian casualties and fatalities have been fairly limited so far. So why is it, and people kind of were willing to kind of say, oh, that sucks for the Syrians, but like, you know, sorry. And uh, some people say, well, that's racism. Their lives just don't count to people as much. And that is definitely one part of it. There is another part of it, and I think this is certainly at play in Europe, that the 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 lives, the culture, the whole what people look like, which is that racism? Yeah, partly racism, but there's also just a sense of everybody experiences things more closely in societies with people who seem like them not just look like them in terms of their skin tone, but live in a similar area, um, in some cases speak related languages, all this kind of stuff. So all of those things are in play and they're working to the advantage. And look, there's, there is one part of this, and this is just, it's what I said, it's racism, it is the sort of the overhang of imperialism, that there is a... An assumption that a lot of people have that isn't even necessarily an assumption of that they approve of, it is just what they're used to, that there's just other parts of the world where this stuff happens, but it doesn't happen in European countries. And there's always, you know, it's funny because in the, for the last 60 or 70 years, that's kind of been part of Europe's brand, right? We don't have big land wars. We have these little, all these ministerial meetings that work things out and we're economically interconnected. Well, recently, sure. <laughs> but Europe had these two horrendous global conflicts that not only tore Europe apart, but spread from Europe to almost every other part of the world because of Europe's empires. In any case, that is another part of it. And it's playing to the advantage of the Ukrainians. But having said that, what's happening there is real. The fact that people didn't take it as seriously or were not as emotionally engaged with what happened in Syria is not their fault. I mean, it's everybody's fault. It's our fault, you know, kind of, but it's not, there's no logic that they have to take it on the chin just because like people didn't care as much about what was happening in Syria. I mean, it's very real. I mean, you'd be pissed if it was happening in your country. And I'll even say this, you know, the Ukrainians are demanding like a no-fly zone. I, I probably would too. But like I'm sitting here in the U.S. and my, my big thing is, again, not having an out of control escalation between the United States and Russia. And that's you don't have to be an American not to want that to happen. It, it's actually in the interest of everybody. And, and for what it's worth, if you had a nuclear confrontation, it would 
almost certainly begin with battlefield nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons in the theater of war, i.e. in Ukraine. So like everybody has a common interest in keeping that possible kind of conflict bottled up and that we not even get remotely close to it. Yeah. I mean, and I think the other piece of that dynamic you just described, that's kind of helping people flock to Ukraine's side is that, you know, for most Americans, unless you're like Tucker Carlson, Putin is an enemy we've had for a while that people know about, that people know to dislike. You know, again, I'm, I'm accepting the, the Trumpy fringe who loves him from this, but in general, and polls have shown that most Republican constituents consider Putin an enemy, which makes sense because he kind of embodies a lot of the things that Americans have disliked for a long time, you know, anti-freedom, authoritarian, um, all that stuff, which I think guided people most Americans in the direction that they ultimately took by siding with Ukraine as well. You know, it's a, it's a character that people already knew, that people knew to dislike, that people knew was bad, that people knew did things like poison his political opponent. So, you know, you already had that factor in place as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's, and there's also the overhang of the Cold War. There's lots of ways that America as a political culture has a, we built up a, a latent hostility to Russia that could be activated easily because of the experience of the Cold War. You know, we have military alliances that were built up around, you know, preventing, prosecuting wars with Russia. We had decades of propaganda about Russia, much of which was, was you know, accurate or at least, you know, broadly accurate, but still propaganda. So I, th I do think America had, that's part of it, right? Mm -hmm. There's, um, I think it was, what is it, you know, the, the CIA, their term for Russia during the Cold War, and I'm not sure it ever stopped, was the main enemy. You know, our system is kind of built around that. So right. as Russia became more authoritarian, more um, bellicose, as certainly after what happened in 2016, as a political culture, we have a lot of, you know, latent antagonism that you pour in things that really do run counter to the values that most of us are, you know, hopefully still some of us in the United States hold to it, you know, it, there's a there's a convenient place to to put it and that that figures into. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about the state of the union a bit during which Biden kind of opened with Ukraine and Russia. Those were the, you know, the first 10, 15 moment, minutes of this speech were all about that. And, the, you know, the, that was the period where you kind of got the most, you know, bipartisan jumping to the feet. You know, you saw like Kevin McCarthy getting up and clapping and a lot of plaudits of the courage of the Ukrainian people and kind of touting the United States role in rallying global support and, you know, kind of all the rest. And you had a lot of lawmakers wearing blue and yellow, the colors of the Ukrainian flag and decked out in sunflowers, their, uh, you know, their national flower and all that. So that was kind of how he started out the speech. It didn't, the rest of it kind of didn't take the path that I was expecting. I just kind of thought after Ukraine and Russia happened, that was going to be a Rip, 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 rip. We're rewriting the whole thing. Because in some ways, the narrative framing of Ukraine and Russia works really neatly with what Biden's whole shtick is back in America, you know, which is that we're in this existential battle for the soul of America between the forces of good slash democracy against bad slash authoritarianism slash Trump, you know, so that framing kind of works on two levels, but it really started out on that note, and then kind of transitioned into more just what you'd expect of a state of the union, you know, kind of like critics are calling it a laundry list as if that's not what it is every year, but it's, you know, section by section, you've got the, the economic section, you've got the COVID section, you know, kind of just going through his domestic priorities in a way that didn't really dovetail as neatly with that center narrative as I thought it might. And that might just be because some of that stuff is hard to get into that framework. It's hard to get inflation in that framework, right, you know, right, right. but that, that is kind of how it, how it transpired after that. And what is, what, what has been the reaction you've seen so far to the speech overall, to different parts of it, stuff like that? In some ways it was just, State of the unions have become almost so predestined. Like you know more or less what they're gonna say, and you know more or less how people are gonna react to it. And I think that's 
hold firm. You know, I I saw some people kind of saying, well, this isn't going to change the tide. This isn't going to change any minds. And it's like, well, could any state of the union at this point change minds or change the tide? I'm skeptical of that. But I thought it was good. I thought his strongest sections was where there's one point where he said, you know, America, we're going to be okay in this section where he kind of did the big pivot to normalcy. I think that was probably the biggest inflection point of this speech was we're moving into a period of COVID where it doesn't have to shut down every single aspect of your life. You know, look around the chamber. Most lawmakers were maskless. Now we have vaccines and Omicron is fading and, you know, it's been hard. It's been a really grief-filled two years, but we're, we're turning the corner. I thought that was kind of, if you had to pin down the main thrust of the speech, I think that was probably it. And everything else kind of followed, you know, that I have a plan for inflation and here's all my legislative dreams that are never going to come true, but we'll pretend for the sake of this speech, you know, all kind of going in that direction. And an interesting thing I thought was, from the shots we could see of the chamber, a lot of the Democratic lawmakers, the senators in particular, were not wearing masks. And I was on the Hill earlier in the day, and many of them were who were not wearing it by the speech. And I found that to be an interesting and kind of illuminating little optical detail of the night. Yeah, I mean, because that is the message that everybody's trying to send now. And it, and it's not just the message. I mean, that they've, uh, I, I guess, you know, the CDC doesn't doesn't make directives. They just give sort of like official guidance. But it but I guess uh, schools now, I don't know exactly all the details, but they're basically saying schools don't necessarily have to, ha- you know, don't necessarily have to have masking and, you know, kind of everything is moving away from masking. And it's, you know, we still have the, we still have the thing that like, I imagine, and and I don't need to imagine, I mean, we have the data on this, you still have lots and lots of people dying from COVID. Um, I haven't checked today, but at least until very recently, it was still upwards of like 2000 people a day, which is mind boggling, mind boggling numbers. And yet most of those people are, you know, voluntarily or and or aggressively unvaccinated and it's a it's a very difficult thing but it does become complicated or confusing to explain to other people or to yourself even why vaccinated and boosted people should need to still you know need to keep wearing masks when their risk is dramatically lower and I mean, this is where it gets complicated. There's not no risk. And, you know, when I go to a, when I go to like a supermarket and stuff, I'm still wearing a mask. I don't I don't mind. And and I don't want to get COVID. But, you know, should it be mandated in what, you know, in what circumstances? Certainly, you know, I, I have it easy in as much as, you know, nowadays I don't work in an office. So masking for me is, you know, when I go out, it it doesn't affect me that much. It affects me as much as I want it to affect me. But it certainly gets to, and this is, I think, where the country is, that the vaccines are there if you want the vaccines. And the boosters are there if you want the boosters. And if you don't, like, what more can we do, mm-hmm. basically, to, to get you to take them? And if you are vaccinated and if you are boosted, assuming you are in, you know, relatively good health, your level of risk is probably one that, okay, it's up to you. You know, how, what level of precautions do you want to take not to get COVID? Since it will probably not be that bad for you. Now, obviously you have certain, you have lots of people who have, they have health conditions and, but they don't need to be convinced to be masked. You know, for them, if anything, it's, it's the reverse that those people are sort of like, great, now everybody's not masked. That means I can't even go out of the house because I'm immune compromised, because I'm this, because I'm that. The the voluntary non-vaccination and the visible, horrible impact of that, you know, what, what can you say? Yeah, I think another kind of, a fundamental weirdness of the speech was that there, there were points where he very purposefully kind of took a center stand you know, probably maybe the one that reverberated the most was his defund the police section where he you know, said multiple times, no, fund the police, fund the police, fund the police, which like, obviously, every single political consultant in the world has now shared that defund the police is a losing message. So, it, you know, it makes sense. But that was kind of a clear, there's a, a little section of like, re- 
rebuffing the left. And that was a part of that. And then there was kind of when he was talking about the bipartisan infrastructure bill, there was a very purposeful, you know, and thank you to my Republican friends who helped us pass it. You know, those sections that was kind of the remember me, I'm I'm centrist old Joe, you know, I'm not threatening. That's why you elected me. So you had that happening at the same time you had Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert tripping over themselves to have their you lie moment. Like they tried so hard all speech long to kind of be the one who got the big scandalous throwing a shoe at George Bush moment. And, you know, the one that I think probably resonated the most because it was honestly, even for those two, just pretty horrific was when Biden was talking about like burn pits in Afghanistan and how it was causing cancers in soldiers. And he kind of used that to bridge into talking about his son, Bo, who died of cancer. And it was really at that moment that Boebert stood up and said, you put them there, as in you put the Afghanistan soldiers in the flag draped coffins, which is just, again, even for them, pretty grotesque to be kind of heckling someone who's talking about their dead child um, or, or or normally if you if you say it if you do anything if you go off key at all when you're talking about dead american soldiers that's like that's not the third rail that's like the electric chair right exactly um and and not that they are operating at this level but if there's anybody who did not put them there it's joe biden right he 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 got the u.s to you know in the face of a lot of criticism and maybe the manner deserved criticism. I mean, everybody knows where I stand on that, but he got the United States out of Afghanistan. And in fact, he is the one who was on the side in the early Obama administration saying, don't surge, don't just leave, just go. It's done. It's not, it's, it's not a good thing. We shouldn't be there. So like he's been, Again, not that they are operating on this level, but you could, you know, you could have if if Barack Obama was still president, you might have said you put them there because you did recommit to that war. Now, there's lots of other reasons, you know, maybe he had a good argument to to recommit to it. You still shouldn't like heckle that, you know, heckle about dead soldiers in a state of the union. But it's just it's it's weird because if mm-hmm. there's there's almost no one in the elite American political, uh, you know, echelon who has been more on the other side of that than Joe Biden. Totally. He's, he's wanted to get out of there for forever. And when he became president, he did. And it cost him a lot. Now, again, the whole debate about how it was done, blah, 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 blah. My feeling is it was always going to be that way because you can't, you know, you can't pull the plug on that without your puppet government falling. That's just how it is. But yeah, they're, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it was just, it's, it's a jarring disconnect, you know, to have Biden kind of using the old school, like bipartisan comedy lines while you have these two people like really who are attending this to both put a spotlight on themselves and to humiliate him at a big moment of his presidency. So that was weird. And then the other piece of it that's weird and is not going to be weird for anyone who is a casual observer who's watching, but is weird if you're not, is the fact that so many of his policy planks that he kind of touted in that speech would have gotten done if Build Back Better had passed. Like, I don't, I almost don't even know what that speech would have looked like if the reconciliation bill was law by this point, because so many of the sections were drug pricing and childcare and long-term care and all the stuff that was in that package, particularly the package that he kind of started out with before it got smaller and smaller and smaller. But well, I, th- I think we know what it would be. It would be the exact same speech, except it would be, we did this stuff. Yeah, right. Yay. Yay, we right. did this stuff. Yay, now your drug prices. Now this, now that. We did it. As opposed to, uh, let's do it. yeah, <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it in the, in the you know, <laughs> let's do it at this point when it's clearly hopeless or, you know, yeah, at least I in mean, the real and, world. And that piece is odd because there is always some part of State of the Union, right, where a president talks about the stuff they want to get passed that has no political dream of getting passed. Like, that is just part of it. And I think that's good. You know, I think people should know what a president stands for, even when there are insurmountable congressional obstacles to getting it done, you know, but then it, it ends up where it's just like this kind of sad mix of like universal pre-K, which we were like 
two votes away from getting in this country and then gun control regulation, you know, which is just never going to happen. And so if you can kind of, I think in the moment of the speech, if you could take yourself back from the political realities, it's kind of like, this sounds pretty good. Like this is a slate of stuff that is popular and that would make people support a democratic president. And then you just take a deeper look and you're like, oh yeah, not going to happen largely because of mansion and cinema. And then because of, you know, whatever else other Democrats would kind of stand in the way. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, you know, it's, <laughs> I think the reality here is that, I mean, the reality here is that Democrats needed two other senators besides, you know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. The other is that Democrats had a very ambitious agenda with 50 votes in the Senate, only 50 votes, which is, again, basically a tie. And they tried to pass it in a climate in which what the country was focused on was the total discombobulation of the COVID, of the pandemic, the fact that the pandemic kind of came back in the middle of the year while they were trying to do all this stuff, the fact that you have had, I mean, I think the, the most accurate and maybe generous way to put it is that you had a lot of economic wreckage from the pandemic, mostly expressed as inflation. And those are the things that had the public's attention. That didn't mean they didn't support in general most of the things that were in Build Back Better, but it wasn't the central thing that people were focused on. The central thing people were focused on was getting us back to normal. Can we get back to normal? Why are we wearing a mask? Why, why is my kid at home? Why can I not go out with my friends and get a beer? All this kind of stuff. And those things, you know, there were all sorts of things that were mishandled along the way, but that was the big picture that just made it made it hard. Yeah. So uh, one other update we should do, which I'm sure all of our listeners know by now, but President Biden announced his Supreme Court pick in between our recordings. Um, to no one's surprise, it was federal judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Um, in some ways, I think this was like probably the most anticlimactic Supreme Court choosing ever because she was pretty much assumed to be the pick right off the bat when he picked her to fill Merrick Garland's seat on the D.C. Circuit. Um, and, you know, for all kinds of reasons, she'd been through the vetting process. She'd been through a full Senate confirmation recently where she got Republican support, you know, has a very kind of classic Supreme Court resume, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What, what, was, what was she doing before she went on the D.C. Circuit? What was her immediate previous she, thing? She was just on a district court, right? Okay. No, that's I, I think so, but I, I I lost track of whether she was yeah exactly what the trajectory was, but yeah, yeah. pretty. Wasn't it true? There was certainly before um, Breyer retired. It was that was certainly my impression. But wasn't there some sense that it might be this judge from South Carolina whose name escapes Michelle me at the Childs. moment? Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean. Honestly, I never thought so, just kind of because almost as soon as her name came out, you had the, the progressive rumblings over her uh, history of representing management in some discrimination suits. Um, there was also some, to a lesser degree, but some talk about the fact that she is handed down some criminal justice decisions, so punitive that they were overturned by later courts. And I think it was just, that's a lot. For someone whose name just came out, that's kind of a lot to find right off the bat before you do your kind of deeper dig. Um, and to some degree, I think it was played up a little bit because Katanji Brown Jackson, you know, as, as smart and brilliant and all the rest as she is, like, that's kind of boring. You know, she was the pick everyone thought it would be. She is assumed, unless Republicans go totally off the rails, to be kind of a smooth pick, whereas you have drama and tension with Michelle Childs and the fundamental, you know, schism in that this is who... Jim Clyburn really, 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 really publicly wanted, and Biden owes Clyburn his presidency for turning around the campaign in South Carolina. So you have all, kind of all that stuff. And then you have the, the next layer of like Lindsey Graham pretending that he would be all on board with a Biden person if only it was Michelle Childs, but now it's a radical leftist, you know? So you had all that dynamic. And then you had Clyburn kind of put rest to it afterwards. He had 
um, he put out a statement, then he held a press call where he basically was like, look, I love Michelle Child. I'm proud of her. She did incredibly well. But I asked Biden to to consider picking a black woman. He did that. He picked someone eminently well qualified. I'm I offer her my kind of full throated support. And then as a little consolation prize, you know, now Biden is going to put use Childs to replace Katanji Brown Jackson on the D.C. Circuit, which is widely considered to be, you know, kind of the second highest court in the land. So Clyburn isn't complaining, you know, and I think everything kind of came out in a, in a more predictable way. The real question now is just how far Republicans will go in opposition to her, because in some ways, and I think McConnell's kind of beating out this path, they won. They've got the court already. It kind of makes sense to add a, a little bit of legitimacy to it by having a bipartisan vote for a Democratic nominee. Mm-hmm. The composition of the court is 6-3 either way. They are set for the foreseeable future, you know. But you've got people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley in the process and it, who care much more about getting their moment in the sun than contributing to a way of doing this that might be better for the Republican Party overall. Right. I mean, it, it's it's one of these cases where if you are, it's hard to say what it, what counts as an establishment Republican now, but let's say establishment Republican as you just want to get reelected and be in the majority. And that's kind of all you care about. You know, that kind of Republican, i.e. Mitch McConnell kind of Republican that, yeah, as you say, they already have the court, not just have it, they double have it. Yeah. Right. They, they have it. They have it with padding. So and, and so all we're doing here is swapping out our liberals, basically. Right. Because one 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 retired. And as you say, if it's since they've already won, it's sort of makes sense for them to say, oh, all this stuff about, you know, it's all political. We're we're going to look at this on the merits and have it be bipartisan or have some Republicans vote for it. And certainly to the extent that they really go to the mat over it, you know, going totally to the mat, over, you know, to block a black woman who is eminently well qualified. You know, it's not you wouldn't say that would like, you know, that would be on brand. But but, but why? You know, why lean into that part of the brand when you don't need to? And uh, not like it's going to, you know, define the midterm election, but why? You don't need to. And, and um, but I guess, so my understanding here, I mean, I think it's going to go through regardless, because tell me if I'm wrong, there doesn't seem to be any sign that Cinema and Mansion are going to create any issue here. So there's 50 Democrats, that's enough. I guess there's this thing where if the members of the committee, the Republican members of the committee boycotted the meeting, then they could hold it up and then they could create a situation where the, the Democrats would have to make a tweak to the rules. But like, but to do that, it has to be unanimous. Right. Yeah. And, you know, on your, the only thing of Manchin and Cinema that's kind of come out is like, at one point, anonymous sources were saying that Manchin like Childs, but not in a way that was kind of like, and he is the only person she will support. It just kind of seems classic Manchin buying into like the idea of bipartisanship that has absolutely no substance behind it. Right. And then on the on your point on the boycotting thing, I mean, Grassley, who is the ranking member on judiciary, basically already said he's not really interested in doing that, the boycott thing. And even though we just saw this on the banking committee, I would say the, the composition of judiciary, even though you've got some nutsos on it, is like a, a little more people who care about the legitimacy so who, of institutions. Is, is Collins or Merca- who's on who's on the like who are the who are the kind of the standouts from a from a non crazy yeah. point of view? Yeah. So we got Grassley is ranking, you have Lindsey Graham, John Cornyn, Ben Sass, uh, Tom Tillis sometimes, and then you've got like a bunch of nutsos. But but you don't have like Romney or Collins or Murkowski no. or any of those mm-hmm. people, right? But those are enough people who kind of probably are just not up. I mean, because look, there's no way that Democrats are going to say, oh, I guess we didn't get that Supreme Court seat and we're going to have to wait till the Republicans take the Senate and uh, President Donald Trump Jr. appoint. You know, that's not going to happen. So I, <laughs> I, I don't, I really don't see like a John Cornyn saying, Let's have this like total, you know, train wreck and and over like, what's the point? Right. right? I mean, if they would have I could see it if they if Biden had really leaned into this 
and gotten some sort of, you know, kind of hardcore prison reform, anti-mass incarceration person, then they would say like, you know, okay, we'll go for it. Because that's that politically that works for us, but that's not this. So kind of what's the point? So yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think also we've kind of gotten a taste of what the Republican attacks are going to be like at the hearings. Um, And so far they've really stemmed from radical leftist groups support her, which is funny because leftist groups really only supported her because they found Michelle Childs objectionable. So she was kind of like the best thing they had, you know, I, it's just, she's it. I'm sure they'll try, but I think it'll be hard for them to believably construe Katanji Brown Jackson as someone who's like far left of the kind of judicial mainstream because she's really not. And she's had a very quote unquote normal career for someone up for this kind of job. Right. Um, right. So, you know, yeah. We have that ahead. They just released the schedule of the hearing. So that'll be at the end of this month. So the end of March. And so that means we think there'll be a vote early April, more or less, first half of April. Yeah. The goal is meant to have the vote before Easter recess on April 11th. So it looks like they're pretty much on track for that. And I assume I haven't, I haven't, uh, you know, feels a little awkward saying this only in the context of this vote. But the senator from New Mexico, is he is he back? Is he I guess it's assumed he will be back soon. Yeah, What's the he's status back. There? He's back in D.C. recovering, but he hasn't been back at the Senate. Um, every update I've heard, like in between the kind of official missives from his office has gone in the direction of Democrats really aren't very worried. He seems to be recovering well. So it seems that he'll be back. Right, 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 right. Okay. Well, that is the wrap up for the state, the ungainly and um, <laughs> an untidy state of the world. Uh, remember that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And that is a wrap. All right. See you next week. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 